Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. It is so cool to be connecting with all of you again today. And for those of you that uh, listen to the daytime show or the daytime version of the Dr. Pat Show, you already know what we're going to be talking about here tonight. And how do I know you know? Because you've already started to send in your questions. Yeah, a couple of very interesting questions coming in here. So I think my guest is going to have a really good time with all of us tonight. Um, thank you guys for tuning us in. Make sure that for those of you that were wondering about how to sign up for the newsletter, we've actually made it easier. Just go to the drpatshow.com or drpatlive.com and just sign up and you'll get a copy of the newsletter. We don't do anything strange uh, with your email address. We just keep you informed and kind of share things that you all want to know about. So very, very cool. Uh, we also want to tell you that, yes, we are going to be starting a nighttime version of the Dr. Pat show. It's going to be called Dr. Pat and Friends. It's going to air 10 p.m. to midnight, Monday through Friday. And we've got something really special planned. And, um, you know, this is so we can meet the uh, the request that we've been getting from people in Australia to host their own shows and so forth or be on the show. And because of time difference, they can't. So we've got a lot of really cool things planned. Today, though, this is really – this is an interesting conversation, you know, because m- many of us go through life and we think, oh, gosh, what's it going to be like to get in a committed relationship? You know, what's it going to be like to grow up, get married? And then we turn on the e-channel and we get a load of perhaps the Kardashians or we take a look at other people that are in our pop culture that we tend to look at as celebrities. And and we see, oh, okay, we thought they would be together forever and they're not together forever. And so the question then you know, then comes up, well, what exactly are we talking about? You know, is marriage, has marriage become more complicated now? How about whether or not we actually learn how to communicate in this day and age where everything is connected digitally? And if you're not Facebook and Twittering, texting and other things, you're actually not staying in touch, according to some. But my very special guest today, I'm so thrilled to have her on the show. She's the author of the book, Marriage Rules, a manual for the married and the coupled up. Yes, that's all of you out there in same-sex relationships that think you're going to get away with something here. This show is just about for everybody. Um, Dr. Harriet Lerner is my very special guest. She's one of the nation's most loved, respected, and relationship experts, renowned scholar in psychology of women and family relationships. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Dance of Anger. And not only that, she's a clinical psychologist. She was in practice and gets to see day 
day after day after day where people are showing up saying to her the kinds of things she gets to help people work through. Now, beyond being on Oprah's channel, on CNN, on NPR, so many other things, she's also somebody that understands that we are now living in a time unlike any other time before. Dr. Lerner, thank you for joining us here today. It's great to have you on the show. It's my pleasure. So, you know, I think that I want to kind of start at the conversation and ask you your opinion to give us the status of marriage right now in the United States. How would you depict marriage today versus marriage 10 years ago or even 20 years ago? Well, or even our parents' marriage or our grandparents' marriage. Right. Um, there's so many obvious differences, like the one you pointed to, that married people come home and or coupled up people come home, and they may immediately go to their favorite technology instead of having even 15 minutes a day together. But there's a French saying that says, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. And I would argue, actually, that the problems that couples get into today um, have always been there and will always be there. There'll be too much distance. There'll be too much blame. There'll be too much criticism. People don't know how to fight fair. Um, there are problems in bed where one person wants sex and the other doesn't. It's difficult when kids come along and especially stepkids. So I would say that humans get in trouble in relationships in pretty much the same way that they did a generation ago. People well, you were know, much you... quieter about it in my parents' generation. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Right. Nobody I mean... knew what was going on in anyone else's house. <sighs> Yeah. And, you know, did you find that we didn't even know what was going on in our own house half the time? Exactly. Right. Because so much wasn't talked about. And, um, you know, now we probably over-talk things, if anything. <laughs> over-talk things or over-text things, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. One of the things you say in the book, and I wanted to to talk to you about this, and uh, I, I found this book, uh, you know, actually quite amazing. And I and I know we're going to go over some of the roles, but you know, you ask a question right out of the gate that I thought was fascinating, and and one that I don't think that we actually ask ourselves in relationship. I think it's a scary question, and you ask the question: Are you motivated to have a better marriage? I found that question to be. Um, one of the questions that you almost have to come see someone like you to sit in front of to make sure that that question gets probed in in a fair and honest way. That is a significant question. And a lot of times we may say yes out of fear of A, being alone, or we don't know that there are other choices. It, it is a, it's a difficult question to really know if your intention is to have a better marriage. And if you don't have that intention, it's hard to make use of therapy. It's impossible to make use of my book, Marriage Rules. And I think it is an important question because a lot of people, for example, will come to me for therapy and they say they have the intention to have a better marriage, but secretly they want me to fix up their partner. You know, they want me to 
um, agree what a jerk their partner is and somehow magically fix him up. And I, I think it takes a lot of um, maturity to really have the intention of looking at your own part of the relationship problems, even if you think your own part is, is 2%, and to have the intention to change that part and bring your best self into the relationship, even if your partner is being the biggest jerk. And in fact, it's exactly when our partner is being the biggest jerk that we're called upon to be our best self. But often people are so angry and so eager to balance the scales of justice and so caught up in being right that they lose the intention of wanting to do their part to uh, to have a better relationship. You know, let's just pluck something right out of the more recent pop culture headlines, if we could. Um, you know, a friend of mine told me the other day, was talking about, uh, and and yes, I will say Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie for a minute. And and he commented, he said, did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? And I said, well, what news? He said, well, Brad and and, and and Angie have decided they may consider marriage, even though the laws haven't been passed for all people to get married. They may consider it and consider it for the children. And I and I held this question for you, um, because is that the right reason? It is it getting married for the sake of the children, or do you think that was simply a publicity statement to make? Well, I can't comment on them, and I think that people get married or people couple up or people choose a particular partner for any number of conscious and unconscious reasons. And I think that if if any of our listeners are struggling with, you know, when it's right to get married, I, I just think that that I would invite people to examine their deepest values because really I think that's the best that we can do. You know, some people say that um, the economy has been a factor in terms of uh, keeping the divorce rates low. I I heard that statistic the other day. Uh, But yet at the same time, marriage and people getting married uh, the number of people getting married is also low. I, I mean, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid to get married? Are we afraid of the unknown? Or are we living in a world where everything is changing so quickly, we're not sure what we can really count on? Well, I think that um, <laughs> we're probably afraid of everything. People are afraid to get married. And people are afraid to not get married and to be on their own. And I think that what we can say is that fear is not a very helpful motivator. It's not good to enter a marriage out of fear. It's not good to pick a partner out of fear. It's not good to make a decision about staying or leaving out of fear. And you know, so often in marriage it becomes very difficult to use our, our best judgment. You know, it can reduce our thinking center to the size of a pinto bean. 
<laughs> but what I would say is that if you are coupled up now, if you are married now, that it's worthwhile to put both feet in that relationship to give it the best chance of succeeding, which is why I wrote Marriage Rules, and to operate out of your best thinking and out of a sense of courage and wish to experiment rather than out of a sense of fear. Because when we're frightened and when we're under a lot of stress in marriage, the fight-flight response takes over for all of us. So uh, we get very fight-flighted. And when we're flighted, we distance, we uh, stop talking about things that really matter, we shut down the lines of communication. And when we're in a fight response, we quickly get polarized with our partner, we get over-focused on what he's doing wrong and under-focused on our own creative options to make things better. And that fight-flight response in couples is what happens when we uh, are under chronic stress or when fear takes over. You know, this book, uh, for me, I, I, I'm telling you, this is kind of interesting because I've read through the book once and now I keep drawn to, I, I, I'm drawn to, uh, certain rules. I see where I, I left my little sticky note on the uh-huh. pages. I left, <laughs> left my little sticky note. And I wanted to ask you, I think it would be important for the listeners to know how this book came to be and, and, and why this is such an important book for our time right now. This book came to be in a really interesting way because after I wrote The Dance of Anger and The Dance of Intimacy and The Dance of Connection and (laughs) 10 other books, which all laid out the theory of how relationships operate and how they get stuck, I thought I was done. And then I was reading a book by Michael Pollan, who's a very sophisticated food writer, and he wrote a very simple book that I recommend called Food Rules. And the book consisted of 64 rules for healthful eating. And they were very short, and some of them were very clever, and it's very user-friendly. The rules are things like don't buy cereal that changes the color of the milk, or um, don't buy food with ingredients that your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize. So I was reading his food rules, and I suddenly had this, um, really like this rush of inspiration. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I can do this for marriage. I can do this for couples. I can strip away all the theory. Now, admittedly, coupling up is a little more complicated than eating. But, I, you know, I realized I could uh, strip away the theory and just give people about a 100 rules which I divided into 10 sections to cover all the hot spots, and that I would make this book for people who um, want to answer the question, but what do I do? You know, what do I do? So that's how the book came about. And the other thing, Dr. Pat, (laughs) is I wanted to write a book that just one person could use if only one person was motivated. Because one of the things I find in couples is that very frequently only one person has their motor running for change. 
So Marriage Rules is a book um, that one person can use if both don't want to. And while it takes two to couple up, it only takes one to really change the marriage. You know, it's funny you mention that because one of the um, one of the questions that has come in uh, specifically asked that, and you know, and, and actually it's phrased. It's from uh, Joni in Montana, who asked the questions: What if you're in a relationship and you want the relationship to take on another form, to get better, to get juicier, but my partner does not, or at least I don't think he wants to. How do you go about that? Should you leave the relationship? And and I think that's a that's a great question, don't you think? Yes, and it's also the state of most marriages that one person is in more pain, mm. that one person um, is really dissatisfied and the other isn't, and um, usually the person who is motivated to change is the woman. A lot of times men come into therapy with their wife's footprints at the seat of their pants. And it really only takes one. So I would really invite um, the person who wrote that question, for example, to look through marriage rules to um, be sort of like an anthropologist and an adventurer in your own marriage and make some of the, the changes. And it's not until you change your own steps in the marriage that you can really see it, that you can really see what's possible uh, between you and your partner. And in fact, if you want a recipe for divorce, just wait for your partner to change first. Well, uh, apparently uh, some of our listeners have read this book. Uh, we've got a question that uh, I'm going to ask you uh, that's very specific. You know, it's coming in from, it looks like, I think it's MJ, coming in from MJ uh, from, uh, looks like Manhattan, MJ from Manhattan. I think that's an abbreviation there. It says, okay, talk about rule number 33. So quick, I went to my book, right? to see what rule number 33 was. Talk about rule number 33. And uh, MJ goes on to say, look, uh, I don't like cats. I like dogs. So the rule is don't try to make a cat into a dog. <laughs> That's the rule. This right. Is... The rule is don't try to make a cat into a dog. Um, <laughs> marriage requires a profound respect for, for differences. And um, I have a cartoon up in my office that I really love, and it shows a dog and a cat in bed together, and the dog is looking morose and reading a book called Dogs Who Love Too Much, <laughs> and the cat is saying, I'm not distancing, I'm a cat, damn it, and I love that cartoon because relationships go best. When um, when we can lighten up about differences and we can realize that, um, if we're more a dog person, that our way of dealing with stress and our way of moving in relationships may be to want to talk things, to want to pursue him for conversation, and he may be a more private or distant person who, especially when he gets under stress, 
gets very allergic to being pursued. And in fact, if you pursue a distancer, he will distance more. You can take that to be a rule of relationship physics. Now, does that mean that the person who's, you know, from Manhattan, if it's from Manhattan? Yeah, yes, I believe it is. <laughs> uh-huh. Does that mean that if your husband has shut down and he isn't available for conversation and he's not present to you and he doesn't listen to you, does that mean that you should, you know, just make excuses for him and say, oh, well, he's a cat, you know, so that's okay that that he never talks to me. You know, of, of course not. Um, you know, there needs to be some way to, to, move to, to move toward him and to invite him to be more of a partner. But if you're doing it in an anxious, critical pursuit kind of way, it's not going to work. So that's why in one of the chapters, um, chapter four, where I say call off the chase, how to connect with a distant partner, yeah, you know, you you do need sometimes to challenge the cat-like nature, but not by um, not by pursuing and not by by nagging. Well, you know, I, I just want to let our listeners know uh, this is so great to have Dr. Harriet Lerner join me here today. Um, the, now her latest book is Marriage Rules, a manual for the married and the coupled up. I want to make sure that all of you know uh, that you can go to her website, which is www.harrietlerner.com, uh, and find out lots more. Of course, you can definitely get a copy of the book from there, but you'll be able to find out uh, a lot. There's information on here that will tell you about her appearances and so forth and speaking engagements as well as telephone consultations for some of these tougher questions that are coming in now. Um, and, you know, Dr. Lerner, it is so great to have you here. So here's a kind of a fun question for you. Have you tried all these rules out yourself? <laughs> have I tried them out myself? Well, <laughs> I've been married to my husband, Steve, for over 40 years. Wow. And because I'm a best-selling author and because I'm a relationship expert, I just behave perfectly in my marriage. So I have moved through every day of these 40 years with perfect clarity and calm and wisdom and wit, much like a saint or a highly evolved Zen Buddhist. So I don't even need these rules, you know. I knew that about you, actually. There you go. <laughs> now, really, the truth is, the truth is that if any of our listeners were a fly on the wall of my house during my bad mother days or my bad marriage days, you would never buy marriage rules. You'd never come to see me in therapy, you know. Because in in truth, all of us have very varied levels of functioning that we bring to our marriage. And marriage um, marriage is very difficult because, you know, the dailiness of living, you're you're under the same roof, you're tying together your finances with someone, you have to navigate sexuality, you have to navigate, or the lack of it, you have to navigate the millions of daily decisions. And then if you add children to the picture, and, and very important because almost half of marriages today are remarriages, if you add stepchildren to the picture, and then, of course, also add all the baggage we bring from our first family, all the stresses along the life cycle. 
it amazes me that things don't fall apart, you know, by the baby's first birthday for everyone. So I do not always follow the rules in marriage rules, as Steve points out to me. Um, and no one will always follow the rules. But when things get tough and you start getting stuck in too much distance or too much fighting, um, it's a good idea to follow some of those rules. You know, there is a um, there is a question that I wanted to ask you about the rules, and we're going to talk about some of these rules uh, for those of you out there uh, in a, in a bit more uh, detail. Um, in all of your years of practice and working with people, have you found that you know any two, three, or four of these rules shows up more than others? What are what are sort of you know if we were doing a Letterman ten nine eight seven six thing, you know what are some of these that show up most often that give people the most amount of, of difficulty? I I begin the book with a chapter with rules about warming your partner's heart. Mm. and warming up the relationship. And that is a challenge for all marriages and uh, couples because when couples first get together during the dating stage or I call it the Velcro stage, um, people know how to make each other feel loved and valued and chosen and automatically notice the positive and speak to the positive. Now, the longer couples are together, the more enduring and lasting the relationship, the more that selective attention flips. And couples automatically notice what they're critical about and comment on that. And they, they automatically don't comment on the specific positive things that they like. So one challenge for all couples is to make a concerted effort. You know, John Gottman is out in the Seattle area, talks yes. about five-to-one ratio of positive to negative as the big divorce-busting formula, that you really need to make an effort to make your partner feel loved and valued and special. And if you were to take away one thing from marriage rules, it might be this, that Nobody can survive in a relationship, at least not happily, if they feel more judged and criticized than they feel respected and valued. And that may sound like common sense, but common sense is lost in the heat and the freeze of marriage. So that's universal. And some other rules are too. The um, chapter on listening, it's called Overcome Your Listening Deficit Disorder. You know, it's not very sexy to think about learning to really listen to your partner, but it is the greatest gift that we can give to our partner and, and the foundation, really, of a good relationship. So that's another one that comes to mind. You know, I love what you're talking about in that, Ben. I remember, um, you know, the first time I, I met uh, Stephen Covey, and he talked about, you know, listening and listening to understand. And I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, I, too, spent a lot of time in that particular section of the book. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. Uh, and, um, 
and and this idea of listening to understand how does this fare in this digital age we live in i mean i was talking with um a friend of mine the other day and we were talking about listening and she actually asked me how I do what I do on radio 14 hours a week. You know, how, how do I sit long enough to really listen to what my guests say? And I actually didn't really have an answer except that I love hearing what my guests have to say. And she said, you know, I'm lucky if I get three text messages saying where he's going to be, when he's going to be home, uh, and uh, whether I need anything. And I thought, okay. Let's ask you about this question of listening, communication, and communicating in the digital age. Well, listening, as I said, it's the greatest spiritual gift that we can give to our partner. Mm. And most of us are very motivated to be understood. You know, we want to be good talkers. We want to get our point across. We want to show that we're right. And really, um, you know, actually, I, I was just thinking, Pat, of, of something that when I lived in Topeka, Kansas, and I worked at the Menninger Clinic, a colleague of mine and I, we gave workshops in the community called Talking Straight and Fighting Fair. It was for women. And mm-hmm. the women were breaking down the doors to get into our workshops. It, you know, had to do with assertiveness. It had to do with exceeding his threshold of deafness and taking a position and being heard, and everyone wanted to come. And then I I once offered a workshop on, on listening, and this was so unsexy that I had to cancel the workshop because not enough people signed up. And, you know, if only our wish to understand the other person were as great as our wish to be understood. But the, the rules on listening are so important. And, you know, it's easy to listen well if your partner is telling you how wonderful and brilliant and funny you are. It's very hard to listen well if you're being criticized. Um, we tend to get defensive. You know, we're wired to get defensive very, very fast. And... Defensiveness is in the body, it's normal, but it's the arch enemy of really listening. So when we get defensive, we listen for the inaccuracies, the exaggerations, the distortions. We listen for the things that we can correct so that we can make our case. And one of the things I would suggest doing to our listeners just as an experiment is to go into a difficult conversation. Um, A difficult conversation would be one in which you're going to get the same old criticism, Mm -hmm. or it could be a conversation where you just feel sick of hearing something. You can't stand hearing your wife's worry about her mother or about your son or And you go into this conversation saying to yourself, I am going to have two conversations, not one, but two. And in this first conversation, I will only breathe and calm myself and only listen to really get it. All I will do is ask questions. 
um, make sure I understand, I won't interrupt, I won't bring up, you know, my complaints, I won't correct facts, that I will only listen to understand and I will um, ask her if there's more she hasn't told me and at the end of the conversation I'll let her know I value her sharing, that, that I'm going to think about it. And that's conversation one. Now, in conversation two, you can go back and you can define your differences, how you see it differently. You might say to your wife, you know, I agree with you that I neglected you at the party, and I really apologize for that. But I don't agree that I was responsible for your over-drinking at the party because I'm responsible for my behavior, but not for yours. So it's an interesting experiment to see if you can invite the very conversation you dread, you know, like what what are her criticisms, and only listen to wrap your brain around the part that you can really understand. Mm. You know, it really sounds like such an art, doesn't it? It really it is a an lot art of form. Mm. You know, um, part of uh, for those of you just tuning in, I'm I'm so honored and thrilled to have Dr. Harriet Lerner join join me here today. Of course, I love the book The Dance of Anger and and Marriage Rules um, is her latest book. It's a book I have in front of me. It's uh, it's it's now what the many questions coming in uh, are are asking, and apparently we're. We're hitting quite a few nerves here, but I wanted to to ask you, um, what would a book on marriage rules be without the conversation about sex? And when I got to that part of the book, I loved, loved, loved opening the book up, and right out of the gate, it says, forget about normal sex. And I thought, okay, I wonder what this is going to be about. Let's talk about this for a minute because um, sex and money, two things we don't like to talk too much about in our society, right? Um, Actually, people talk more easily about sex and therapy and more honestly than they do about money. Oh, yeah. But we'll talk about sex because I like that chapter with the rules about forget about normal sex. I, I like the chapter too, and I, and I, I I actually when I it was so refreshing to get to this part of book, and I and I actually had to read that this chapter title several times to make sure my brain was getting it right. It's kind of like, did she say forget about normal sex? Am I reading that right? Even though what is it like twenty font on the page? <laughs> <laughs> This is is an important chapter. Let's let's just tell our listeners because we have a couple questions here um, about sex that I, I want to get to. But let's tell them what that means when you say forget about normal sex. There's a cartoon I like that shows two birds on a wire, and one bird is saying to the other, "You know, to tell the truth, I don't think I fly as much as I should," and. That's how people are with sex. I mean, people have these sex cops that have set up precincts in our brain that tell you, you know, what is normal sex and and how often you should do it and what it really is. And, um, you know, 
and it, people actually make themselves quite miserable um, because people feel they don't measure up and they feel they don't do it often enough or there's something wrong with their level of desire or there's something wrong with their desirability or there's something wrong with their equipment or they have these really quirky, crazy fantasies and they think that means they don't love their husband because they, you know, have to think of something else to really sort of, you know, get over the top. And um, so the title, Forget About Normal Sex, is my attempt to um, tell people, first of all, not to judge their sex drive, to stamp their sex fantasy as normal. Fantasies are only fantasies. And um, to, um, you know, there are a number of rules there. But that, you know, that's enough for a start. Well, it's a great start. And let me share a little story with you because, you know, it's part of, it really, really does talk to some of the questions that are coming in. Uh, a friend of mine went to the movies with her um, boyfriend. I, and they're not married, but they've been a couple for a really long time. Went to the movies, uh, I think it was last weekend, and, and went to see the latest um, Underworld uh, movie with Kate Beckinsale. Of course, this is the Vampire Chronicles, Underworld, so forth and so on. This one was called apparently The Awakening. Uh, I guess she thought it was going to be spiritual. Um, so th- they went to this movie, and, and actually he was the driving force behind it, but, you know, she went to the movie. Ended up leaving the movie, went to bed that night, had an ero- she had the erotic dream about Kate Beckinsale in, in the movie, the woman that does play the vampire, right? Uh-huh. And Kate, yeah, Kate Beckinsale's just beautiful woman anyway. Wakes up the next morning, and they're sitting and they're having coffee before they go to work. And and the boyfriend is, says to her, "My God, you you're so happy today. Uh, you, you, you know what what's going on?" And she smiled and said to him very honestly, "I had a really hot dream about Kate Beckinsale in the vampire movie." So Uh you could have heard a pin drop, she said. She said she doesn't understand why she actually shared that with him. Um, But what happened with that was here they now dealt with, they didn't have any tools to deal with this. And he very quietly didn't say anything, finished his coffee, left the house. And it's so interesting that we're talking about things like this. And a couple of the questions actually have come in that have to deal with sex. One of the questions came in, you know, that that is asking about fantasies. Are fantasies a way to bring people closer together sexually? And this is one of the questions. Or do they drive people apart? And I guess that kind of, you know, this is kind of the funny story, you know, that my friend shared with me. And by the way, she had Kate Beckinsale dreams Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. <laughs> so, which she didn't share with him. But, but, but this really does talk to what you're addressing in the book. Because she thought it was very normal to share that with him. He didn't think it was so normal and had a hard time dealing with it. You know, his reaction is an illustration of how very vulnerable people are about sex and how personally people take things that, that aren't personal. And, you know, there are couples where they um, share fantasies together 
and they share fantasies out loud, and they share fantasies when they're having sex, and that works fine. And there are couples where fantasy life is considered very private, and they don't share it, either because it's private for them or because they know their partner well enough to know that their partner will become so reactive that it's not a useful thing in the relationship. And, you know, every couple is different. And people's sexuality is as unique as their fingerprints. And it's something that, you know, we figure out at every stage of the life cycle along the way. But people make themselves so unhappy um, comparing themselves to what they think sex should be or what their best friend says it's like for her or they feel that their sex fantasy isn't normal. They don't realize a fantasy is only a fantasy. You know, I think I used the example in the book that, you know, you might have this sex fantasy that really turns you on when you're with your husband about your dentist tying you up in your chair and ravaging you, but you would run for your life if it really happened. I mean, a fantasy doesn't even say what you actually want. Fantasies come from, you know, some deep place in the unconscious, goodness knows where. And, um, you know, a fantasy is just a fantasy, but people are very vulnerable, and if you're if it's not helpful to share a fantasy with your partner, then it's not helpful. Well, and, you know, part of this is you address in the book, and I think this is really, you know, really talks to the depth of some of these rules because I've gone through all of the rules, and I thought to myself, you know, if I could master 10 of these, um, I, I think I would be doing pretty good. You know, but part of what you say over and over again in very different ways is this thing about don't judging. And you say the same thing again, don't judge your sex drive. And I love the quote that you have by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. I mean, it is amazing, not just about sex or motherhood or whatever it is, um, how the human brain, you know, makes us totally miserable as people compare themselves in whatever it is to how they think they see other people and feel they fall short by comparison. And, you know, it's it's just um, it's sort of what the brain does if we don't get it into shape. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think you covered this uh, in the book as well. One of the questions that has have come in is, uh, and, and this is the exact question, hi, Dr. Pat, um, hi, Dr. Lerner. This is a very fascinating conversation. Uh, I don't have the book in front of me, but I do have a question for you. I will go out and get the book. The question is this. Uh, we've had our first child, and a friend of mine suggested that myself and my husband go to therapy and I didn't really understand why they suggested that except now eight months into raising my child I can understand how a therapist might be able to help us can you ask Dr. Lerner what her thoughts are and is it as difficult to raise children as uh we seem to be uh, having at this time? Well, this is a big question. Um, The answer is yes, 
it's that <laughs> difficult. And I have a chapter in the book of rules that says, um, kid shock, kid shock, keep your bearings after children arrive. And another for stepchildren, because that's even more challenging and requires different rules for the marriage. Once the first baby comes, it's not just that the baby changes your marriage. It's that you have an entirely different marriage, an entirely different life. And it's very normal. Actually, I can use myself as an example, because I don't know if any of you out there have read The Mother Dance where um, I talk about this issue of what happens when kids come along and I share some of my bad mother days. And, um, you know, we spent the first year of our first son's life, Steve and I, actually having the same fight over and over. I mean, here we were two professionals and we, um, we just couldn't get a grip. And I think it's very normal for things to get very stuck in distance and fighting after the first kid comes along. Uh Or you get over-focused on the kid and you literally forget, you know, that you have a marriage and you forget to get a babysitter until your kid is filling out college applications. You've just forgotten that you also have a partnership. And it does not mean you have to go into therapy. Um, but I think it is useful to, I mean, we just, once kids come along, we need all the help we can get. So, yeah, you know, read the rules on, on uh, kids. But know that it is normal to really get stuck in distance and, and blame. And usually the woman with sex is kind of like, sex? What's that? You know, <laughs> when the first kid comes along. And, and this is normal. You know, someone, um, um, who was it? He said, Faye Weldon. She said, um, actually, she was talking about maybe the issue of anger at kids, not just anger at your partner. But she said the very best thing about not having children is that you can go on thinking that you are a nice person. And I think that nice, you know, I would paraphrase that and I would say the good thing about not having children is that you can think that marriage is easy. Yeah. And then once you have children, you understand how wars start. So, um, you know, it's normal, and being normal doesn't mean that you should get too lazy about things going south. So uh, we all need all the help we can get when it comes to marriage and kids. Well, you know, I think this is probably, I, I think we'll have time for one more question that's uh, come in. And this is, you know, this is kind of interesting. You know, um, hi, Dr. P. Uh, you know, in the spirit of Kenny Rogers, Kenny Rogers, is that right? In the spirit of Kenny Rogers, um, can you please ask, how do you know when to hold them and how do you know when to fold them? <laughs> I think they're talking about the relationship here. Well, if it's a question of, you know, if the question is, how do you know when to stay and keep working on a relationship? Yes, I think that's it. And how do you know when to um, talk about divorce or separation? 
it's a very difficult question, and I, I think that when people are married, and especially if they're kids, because kids really raise the stakes, that it's really worthwhile um, not only putting both feet in the marriage if you're there now, but really working to be your very best self in the marriage and being willing to experiment with doing some of the different things that um, that I suggest in this book, and also the Dance of Anger, and also other resources that you might find, so that if the marriage ends, that you will know that you've given it the very, very best chance of succeeding, rather than that you have sort of flown out of it uh, during a difficult time. Because marriage will have difficult times. It will have uh, many difficult times where there will be lots of fighting or there will be lots of distance. And one thing that a good marriage requires is a very long-range view and the ability to keep both feet in the marriage during the difficult times. So I think the way you know when you're wanting to leave is that you have really spent maybe nine months um, following the rules that are most important to you. So you're bringing your best self into the marriage and you're doing that sort of research of what's really possible. You know, when when we look at the many things that can happen in relationship and i wanted to ask you this question um um we we got half the question that came in over the instant feedback mechanism um and in the question really had to do with things and the last word i got was not negotiable you know are there things that are not negotiable meaning are there things that happen in a relationship where you have to understand that no matter what rule you have, there needs to be a different direction that the relationship takes. Absolutely. But there are things that are not negotiable. Absolutely. I mean, and in yeah. fact, one, one of the chapters in the book, which is a, a very difficult one, is know your bottom line. Yes. Um, because on the one hand, relationships require a profound respect for differences that that we can live with someone who thinks and feels and reacts differently and we don't have to shape them up and fix them. But at the same time, we have to have a bottom line position. And what that means is that that we have certain values and priorities and beliefs that are not negotiable under relationship pressures. So we can say, this is where I stand, this is what I believe, these are the things I will and will not do, these are the things that have to change for me to be able to stay in the relationship and feel good about myself and you. And that chapter on the rules for knowing your bottom line are complicated in marriage because um, what happens is women especially get caught up in lots and lots of blaming and complaining, but complaining is different than having a very clear position for self, a, a position on which you do not compromise. So I have 10, maybe 12 rules on that because it's very 
important. If you have no bottom line, your relationship will spiral downwards. You know, I actually really loved that chapter, um, the chapter you wrote on Know Your Bottom Line, because it really does ask you, it, it asks each of us to explore ourselves, meaning not to explore the other person, but to really take a look at ourselves and get clear about what our own personal guidelines are for relationships. Exactly, exactly. So we're not just acting in reaction to the other person, we're reacting, uh, we're acting on our own belief system. Now, I would like to add that a bottom line position does not have to be about divorce. It doesn't have to be a big deal breaker. But what it means is that when you say one thing, like I can't live with this, that your actions are congruent with it, that you don't live with it. And the example I give actually with my husband Steve is um, sort of seemingly a very little one. It was about cleaning up the kitchen. And it was my turn to clean up the kitchen, and I didn't clean it, I didn't clean it, you know, a few days went by, and then it was Friday night, and I wanted to go out to a movie with him, and he had reached a bottom line, now this is a bottom line position, and he said to me, you know, we're not going to the movies, we're not going anywhere, no business as usual until you clean the kitchen, um, and that was a bottom line position, and the reason it was a bottom line position is that he really meant it, that there would be no business as usual until I cleaned the kitchen. So he went downstairs and was playing his guitar, and I cleaned up the kitchen, both because I realized that it was the fair thing to do, and also because I needed his help with my computer. I wanted him to fix something in the printer, and I knew he really meant it when he said no business as usual until you do the dishes. So it can be a little thing, you know, the kitchen is a, is a little thing, but a bottom line position is where you you really mean it. So, for example, if you say to your partner, I cannot stay in conversations where you don't treat me with respect, where you're I... like in debate mode and treating me like an idiot, that you don't stay in the conversation, that you, you exit. A bottom line position, is it's like so in your body that your behavior and your words are congruent. It's very hard in marriage. So the rules um, for the bottom line position are really important. And, you know, what I get the sense of is also, you know, in this particular section of the book is that, you know, you really have to think about what your bottom line is. I mean, it's not some words you just spew in the heat, you know, in a heated conversation. Exactly. Exactly. And often we don't know what our bottom line is. We have to struggle to figure it out. We might not know what we're entitled to or what we deserve, or we might be too afraid of losing our partner. Um, But everyone needs to have some bottom line position because if you have an anything-goes policy in marriage, if your partner is being um, operating at your expense and is diminishing you or in any way harming you and you're crying or pleading or complaining but you don't have a clear position that you will not participate in it, 
it's not good for you. It's not good for your partner. And it's not good for the relationship. Mm. Well, you know, I, first, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, we didn't get to all the, the questions that have been coming in, but we certainly did get to quite a bit of them. I wanted to ask you one last uh, question, and thank you so much for all the work you do. I, I just so love that you're out in the world helping so many people. So thank you so much for that. I thank wanted to you ask you for all the work that you do in the world. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, what is your personal message? What would you like to leave uh, everyone with tonight? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that relationships are very, very difficult and that it is normal in our most enduring relationships that we are our worst that that it's normal. It's normal if you're married that you're going to treat your dry cleaner better than your partner. <laughs> but at the end of the day, um, how we treat the people who are really important to us, it, it you know, has everything to do with sort of where we stand in the world. So it's really worth working on. I love it. Dr. Harriet Lerner, everybody, the book is Marriage Rules. Please go check out her website, and you'll be able to find out about her speaking engagements, telephone consultations. Uh, also, the book, The Dance of Anger, is there as well. Uh, it is very simple. Go to www.harrietlerner.com. And if you've missed any part of today's conversation, uh, please make sure you check back in a couple of days. We'll have the archive up. Thank you, Dr. Lerner. Thank you so much. It was a great Thank honor you. to have you. Thank you. I want to thank all of you for tuning us in and turning us on. You inspire us. Um, wow. How much can I say about you but this but that you're all very, very special. I want to thank all of you that have sent the questions in and that continue to spread the word because this is the life we get to live. Let's make it our best. We'll see you next time on the Dr. Pat Show. Oh, someday, not somehow.